Welcome to our public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, leading architectural historian Dr. Simon Thurley looks at the growing role of the state in the cultural life of the nation in the 40th anniversary Gerald Walters Memorial Lecture. The Gerald Walters Memorial Lecture is the most prestigious and long-lived of the public lectures at the University of Bath. It was the first lecture series established after the granting of the University of Bath's Royal Charter. Dr. Gerald Walters, in whose honour the series is named, was our first reader of humanities and is credited with bringing to the university the recognition of the importance of studying the nature of society in what was then largely a scientific and technological institution. Indeed, Gerald's widow, Dorothy Walters Godfrey, who I'm really sorry to say had to pull out of being here this evening at the very last minute. Dorothy is now 93 and usually comes to these events, but uh, she wasn't well enough this evening, and I'm sure that you would join in with me in, in sending her our best wishes. Yes, some people know her, and <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. But Dorothy, some time ago, assured me that it was Gerald who persuaded the university to change its title from Bath University of Technology to the University of Bath in order to reflect the much broader intellectual reach of this institution. And 40-odd years on, I certainly think he did the right thing in persuading the university community of that fact. Since the first lecture in this series in 1971, which was given by Lord Clark, we have had a remarkable series of lecturers from every walk of intellectual endeavour, including Ralph Darendorf, Walter Bodmer, Crispin Tickell, Chris Patton and Honora O'Neill. And Dr Simon Thurley, our speaker tonight, is the worthy inheritor of this tradition. Simon, as I'm sure all of you know, is a leading architectural historian, a regular broadcaster on television and radio, and the chief executive in his spare time of English heritage. Um, this is the government's principal advisor on the historic environment of England. On this, the 40th anniversary of its inception, I can think of no one better to give the Gerald Waters Memorial Lecture to you this evening. Please join me in welcoming Simon Thurley. Thank you very much for your um, welcome. Um, I was asked uh, to give this lecture and was delighted and honoured and flattered to accept. But there was a condition attached to it, and that was that I should return to the first subject that was addressed uh, 40 years ago. Now, that, to put it mildly, is quite a tall order, given the stature of the person who was giving the lecture. But what I did do was I returned to the pages of the book that uh, was called Civilization that uh, Lord Clark reluctantly wrote to accompany his television series. And what is uh, apparent from reading that book is that for him, 
civilization effectively stopped in 1914. Well, perhaps not stopped, but after 1914, we entered what he describes as the era in which we are now living. An era in which he felt profoundly uncomfortable. Phrases such as, we have no idea where we are going, and I am completely baffled what is about what is taking place today, epitomized his view of an age in which he saw the establishment of which he was a part being under heavy attack. And he summed it all up in the last, last page of his book, saying one might concede that the future of civilization does not look very bright. One might be optimistic, but one can't exactly be joyful about the prospect before us. This sort of lack of joy is entirely understandable if you take the same starting point as he took, and that is that civilization rests on the shoulders of the genius of individuals. And this, of course, was the theme of Clark's programs. And in 1969, it must have seemed at least questionable whether this was true any longer. Where was the genius in post-war England? Well, perhaps safely ensconced at Saltwood Castle, his family home in Kent, this hardly mattered. But the moment he got off the train at Victoria Station in 1969, you were confronted with the hard fact that after the Second World War, architecture in Britain had effectively been nationalised. The state had taken over the patronage of architecture and very few individuals built uh, in the prevailing modernist style. It was the state, local and central government, the universities, we're standing in a building that absolutely uh, makes my point, uh, the post office, the, not this point of that, obviously. Um, the post office, the railways, these were the patrons of architecture um, of the age. Some of the buildings were, of course, very good. I wonder what Kenneth Clark thought of the Royal Festival Hall, which very unusually for a modernist building is a genuinely popular building with the public, finished in 1951 and given a new front uh, about 10 years later. But the Festival of Britain led to a reaction from architects, all, almost all of whom were being commissioned by the government. These architects hated the frippery of the architectural style of the early 1950s, and their anger and the disappointment with it led, of course, to brutalism. Here um, is the icon of English brutalism, the engineering building at the University of Leicester by James Stirling, built in 1959 to 1963, one of the most influential modernist buildings in the world, I think. Park Hill Flats in Sheffield by Jack Lynn and Ivor Smith, uh, completed in 1961, represent the triumph of the construction of a new model for social housing. It was the solution to people's wants and people's desires, a building provided by the state to allow people to live a free life inside. Vast, ugly, concrete, certainly, collapsing, it is now. It still dominates Sheffield. And even in the sphere of 
the state patronage of the arts, there was uncompromising architecture. The South Bank Centre, designed by the LCC architects and comprising the Purcell Room and the Hayward Gallery. No windows, a door deliberately hidden away. This was a complete rejection of hierarchy. You couldn't even have a, a visible door to go in. These buildings were designed to contain things to enhance and, of course, delight the senses. The National Theatre, next door, by Dennis Lasden, uh, a much better building in its monolithic grandeur, uh, but still um, uncompromisingly um, brutal. These individual commissions uh, are interesting, but I think need to also be seen in a wider context. And that context is the remodelling of some of the most beautiful and important Georgian uh, and medieval towns in England, places like Plymouth, Nottingham, uh, Derby, Leicester, Coventry. Um, and, of course, uh, the redevelopment of the city centres of places like uh, Birmingham, London and Manchester. The story of these cities really starts in the middle of the war with a, a tremendous burst of optimism. The father of it all was, was Lord Reith, because in response to the, the Nazi bombing of these cities, um, particularly London and particularly Plymouth, he commissioned Lord Abercrombie, the greatest uh, planner of the day, to draw up a plan for the reconstruction of London and uh, of Plymouth. Reith's plans triggered a whole series of plans for almost every major town and city in England. And of these, only one uh, was actually rebuilt, and that was Plymouth. And Plymouth today um, encapsulates the, the dream of the wartime planners, a new city devoted to the department store and to the motor car. Birmingham, uh, another example, uh, and one of the first with a huge sweeping road with massive office blocks uh, round the road. Uh, and from 1954 to 1974, hardly an English town escaped dual carriageways and huge town centre redevelopment in concrete and prefab tiles. And all of this, of course, we have to remember this is very important, was commissioned by the generation of local authority councillors who had the gung-ho spirit of D-Day. Well, in 1973, the whole brutal process came to a grinding halt. Spiralling inflation meant a complete collapse in public finances, and in the background, there was actually massive public protest. The 1969 London scheme for a huge series of motorways was stopped by violent protest marches, and this is a photograph out of the newspaper of the march that saved Covent Garden, which would have been uh, turned into a dual carriageway if it hadn't been for um, the protests. But perhaps um, more importantly, there was a realisation that the predictions of the 1960s hadn't come to pass. In the 60s, they believed that the population growth that had uh, been uh, going immediately after the war would continue at the same rate. They believed that car growth, which trebled immediately after the war, would continue at a similar rate. And in both these predictions... They were wrong. During the 1970s, as this realisation dawned, public expenditure, uh, when it was available again, moved from the city centres to the, motors, to the motorways in the countryside, eventually culminating with the construction of the M25. I've dwelt on this because this 
was the architectural context in which Kenneth Clark made his series, Civilization. An environment fundamentally different from that of the old Europe whose civilization he so eloquently chronicled in his series. This was a world where, in the realms of architecture at least, the state was now the patron, and the architects were all too often faceless and angry men intent on sweeping away the buildings that had come before. Just as the state captured the patronage of architecture, so it moved center stage in the patronage of contemporary art. The foundation of the Arts Council out of the wartime Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts in 1945 was the first step. Lord Clark, then merely Sir Kenneth, was a founder member of the wartime council, and he very much hoped to take over the chairmanship of the Arts Council when it was finally constituted in 1945, but he was to be disappointed when it was given to someone else instead. The Arts Council was given new powers and increased financial muscle in the 1960s. 1965 was the crucial date. And then began to give grants for the construction of new art galleries. The most significant of these we've already seen is the Haywood Gallery, in which the Arts Council itself ran uh, a series of very important exhibitions. But across England, 154 other art galleries were either built or extended by Arts Council cash. Well, by 1968, the Arts Council began to recognise that art was not what it once was. Alternative forms of expression, installations, environments and happenings all needed to be recognised and supported by the council. And this was a very painful process for the people who were uh, on the council in those days, a process actually, I think, resisted by the then chairman of the Arts Council, Lord Goodman. But it led indirectly to a major show at the Haywood Gallery, a show called Pop Art Redefined. Here are a couple of exhibits from it. In the show, pop art was presented, and I'm now quoting from the catalogue, as a resistance movement directed against the establishment in general and the art establishment in particular. It was against the old-style museum man, the old-style critic, the old-style dealer, the old-style collector. This, ladies and gentlemen, was a show directed against people like Kenneth Clark. The last episode of civilization, as I've said, stopped before the First World War, and Clark elected not to examine this contemporary art, which was represented uh, by this pop art show. He thought it chaotic, reflecting an inner chaos in society caused by scientific discoveries that had dismantled the old view of the universe as an ordered hierarchy. The BBC's series, Civilization, was a direct counterblast to the assault on the paternalistic art establishment dominated by men such as himself and Lord Goodman. But it was ultimately a futile counterblast, as the juggernaut was now unstoppable. The balance between artists and museums had fundamentally shifted in, the Ameri in America uh, in the 1930s. The Museum of Modern Art 
opened in 1929, for the first time approached living artists and gave them the same status as dead ones. The 1960s saw the traditional boundaries of art dissolve, and I've already explained how uh, this happened um, in England. Art was now all too often an installation, and it was often commissioned not by a private patron, but the, creator, uh, the curator of an art museum. Artists themselves, it has to be said, were disconcerted by this change. The massive audiences that the patronage of public institutions brought was, of course, uh, very welcome, as was their cash. But they disliked the shift of artistic power away from the individual. And this is um, a painting, uh, American painting, showing, as you can see from the title, the Los Angeles County Museum on Fire, representing the ambiguous relationship between uh, the patronage of these big institutions and the artists uh, who felt that this was in some ways compromising their um, artistic integrity and um, independence. I think that the moment the British public realised that this change had taken place was the purchase by the Tate Gallery of Equivalent Seven by Carl Andre in 1974. The sculpture, which will be very familiar to everyone in this room, uh, consisted, as you will remember, of 120 fire bricks. And it provoked an outcry and, of course, famously became known as the Pile of Bricks. This is Giles the Daily Express. This was a direct challenge to people's perception of what art was and, more importantly, the role of a publicly funded institution in directing and, indeed, leading public taste. Here's another one which I quite like. <laughs> so... During the huge museum boom of the 1980s and into the 1990s, the Tate Gallery, and particularly, I think, Tate Modern, became the institution that shaped taste in contemporary art more than any other. How much further from the central thesis of civilization was it possible to get? The society which Lord Clark was now living in was one in which individual patronage was in some areas almost dead, and the state, in the guise of local authorities and museum curators, had become the new makers of civilization. And this, I think, brings me to my central theme this evening, because at the very moment in which the state captured the patronage that had for centuries defined European civilization, so it also captured the means by which to write its own history. History, of course, comes down to us through many different sources, through manuscripts, letters, diaries, the bureaucratic outpourings of civil servants, through paintings, artefacts, and through oral tradition. Yet, arguably, the most present and powerful expression of our civilization is the historic environment, the landscape around us, buildings, streets, archaeological sites, even the remains on our foreshore. Now... Concern with protecting all this was very slow to develop in England. While the French had created a state service for the protection of uh, monuments in 1837, the first act in England wasn't until 1882. And uh, it was uh, achieved by uh, a Liberal MP, Sir John Lubbock, the uh, MP for Maidstone. And it was he who got, in 1882, the Ancient Monuments Protection Act passed. Uh, 
the Act established the principle that the state, in the form of the commissioners of the Board of Public Works, could take into their care any of an agreed list or schedule of what were called ancient monuments. And the schedule attached to the bill uh, listed 68 sites. If you were to look at this schedule, you will see that the primary concern of Parliament at this stage was actually prehistoric monuments, mainly burial mounds and stone circles. An editorial published in the Times in 1882 noted that the Act in its current form would probably be of limited interest to the wider public, noting, England will not yet go mad on clay funerary urns, flint heads and scrapers. But Lubbock's uh, enthusiasm was undimmed, and when he was eventually made a peer, he took the title Baron Avebury, causing one of his friends to ask whether it would be followed by his promotion to Viscount Stonehenge. <laughs> well, the act passed. Uh, General Pitt Rivers, the father of modern archaeology, was made the first inspector of ancient monuments, and the transfer of these sites from this schedule into public ownership began. And uh, by uh, 1890, all 63 of these uh, monuments had passed into state care. But by then, uh, there was mounting concern uh, about the state of various medieval buildings, particularly the Eleanor Crosses. And this led to the passage of another uh, bill, the Ancient Monuments Protection Act, which saw the definition of sites that could be taken into state care broadened. And a whole category of new mon monuments uh, were now eligible to be rescued by the government. And by far the most important of these were the monasteries uh, dissolved at the Reformation and the castles slighted during the Civil War. A third of Act, Act of Parliament in 1913 put the icing of the cake. Uh, and this is quite an interesting act. It was stimulated by the case of Tattershaw Castle, a magnificent uh, 15th century brick keep uh, built uh, by, for Ralph uh, Lord Cromwell in, in, in Lincolnshire. It was bought, this castle was bought by a consortium of American businessmen who in 1911 uh, took out the fireplaces, put them in packing cases, uh, ready to sell to America. The castle was then going to be pulled down and the materials sold, but it was bought in the nick of time by Lord Curzon. The fireplaces uh, he found at Tilbury Docks waiting to be loaded onto a ship. He bought them from the Americans and they were returned to the castle in triumph, draped coffin-like with a Union Jack. The dramatic rescue of Tattershall Castle contributed to this act of 1913, which, after a very hard-fought debate, introduced a system for issuing preservation orders on buildings at risk uh, of demolition by a private owner. Well, Pitt Rivers was succeeded by a new inspector of ancient monuments, uh, uh, an architect, an antiquarian, a man called Charles Reed Piers. And for Piers, the charm and visual appeal of buildings was not their, uh, here he is, um, not their tumble-down, uh, ivy-strewn decay, but what lay beneath. For Piers, these buildings were, in fact, documents. They were documents that you could read and interpret and would give information about our past. This is Revo Abbey, I'm showing you, the first and greatest of the Cistercian monasteries in, in, in Yorkshire. It came into the guardianship of the state in 1917, 
and uh, Piers uh, directed the full force of his philosophy against it. Uh, he excavated 16 foot of uh, built-up soil, and you can see here one of the little railway carriages, a railway built to actually remove the, uh, the masonry. He dismantled much of the ruin, he filled uh, the, uh, the, 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 the voids with reinforced concrete, and put it all back together again and laid uh, a lawn around it. And that is what Revo Abbey looks like today. This was the philosophy that rapidly changed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of medieval monuments in England into uh, the appearance in which we see them today. And the speed of this process was remarkable. In 1910, there were 89 sites in the care of the state. In 1913 alone, 22 monuments were added to the list. And by 1952, when Piers died, there were 400 sites um, taken into the care of the government. But for many <coughs> of these monuments, this treatment that I'm showing you here was deeply um, uh, and fundamentally distorting. Because for Piers, the monuments in his care were, were essentially the products of the Middle Ages. And his mission was to reveal as much as still remained of the pre-Reformation fabric as possible. Any post-Reformation buildings were simply knocked down. And uh, Revo Abbey, which you see here um, in 1917, was a, a site that was covered in um, 16th, 17th and 18th century buildings, all of which were knocked down. Uh, here is a nice example. This is Conwy Castle in Wales. This is a picture of the outer walls um, in the 1940s. Uh, in the 1950s, that's what it looked like, because the Ministry of Works had demolished all the 16th, 17th and 18th century cottages and houses that had been built up against the walls. These later structures were perceived as having a lesser importance than the medieval walls, which were um, revealed by their demolition. Now, I'm not suggesting in some way that the Ministry of Works went bad in the 20th century. But his, and as a historian, you've always got to be very careful not to patronise the past. But my point is that the buildings and monuments that had undoubtedly been saved by the state uh, were moulded and defined by an approach to medieval history that was fundamentally distorting. But I think more important than that, the buildings that they saved were not chosen in a scientific manner. They were simply the buildings that Piers and uh, his colleagues found interesting and important. And if, for instance, you were to put, plot the 400 or so buildings that they rescued by the 1950s onto a map, you will see that they are completely uh, random and not linked together in any way, a very partial section. Well, the work of these early inspectors uh, wasn't academic, but it was very much uh, the product of a strong antiquarian tradition. But in actuality, before the 1950s, the passionate uh, um, cares of individuals did much more than the state did to rescue ancient buildings. And of course, it's a fallacy to imagine that before the Ancient Monuments Acts of the 1880s, that people weren't interested in saving old buildings. I mean, Elizabeth I acted to stop iconoclasts from um, demolishing old buildings. Oliver Cromwell, even, lost his nerve when it came to knocking down Hampton Court because it represented so much of the nation's history. And take the Dukes of Devonshire, for instance. Um, they had two houses. They had Chatsworth, 
the house in the 17th century that they developed and turned into this incredible palace, but they also owned Hardwick Hall, which they kept um, and embellished, and in the 19th century turned into a sort of Tudor museum, celebrating the um, ancient lineage and the ancient collections belonging to their family. This is an expensive job, keeping up two houses. They didn't need to do it, but they did so because they cared about the, the venerability of their um, second great house. But I think what really changed attitudes um, towards preserving old buildings was, of course, the Industrial Revolution, an event of such force that it seems to many that the gentlemanly acts of antiquarianism that saved buildings like um, Hardwick Hall uh, were now going to be powerless. A house like Hardwick was now surrounded by coal mines and coke works and acidic smog swirled around its uh, Elizabethan turrets. The railway, mass housing, docks, mines, quarries all seemed to threaten what it was that individuals could do to save um, um, old buildings. And this is why William Morris uh, founded the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Buildings. He'd been won over by the experience of going past Burford Church and seeing chunks of medieval masonry being demolished um, in preparation for uh, restoration. But the other voluntary body to be uh, founded uh, almost exactly the same time was, of course, the National Trust, founded in 1895. And although today, of course, it's very much associated with its country houses, initially it was uh, most concerned with open spaces. Uh, an act of 1907 enabled it to take on property uh, inalienably, um, in the current words of the National Trust, forever for everyone. But in the first uh, 50 years of its history, there was a big change of, uh, of tack, because uh, the growth of estate and death duty, which had been hugely increased after 1910, made everyone very concerned about the future of country houses. And it seemed as if hundreds of them were going to be sold and demolished. And as a result, the trust started the process of acquiring them. Uh, this man, Philip, the 11th Marquess of Lothian, uh, addressed the National Trust's AGM in 1934, setting out how he believed that the Trust could save England's country houses by getting the state to accept the estates in lieu of tax and pass them to the National Trust. An act was passed in 1937 which allowed this to happen, and in an act of extraordinary generosity, he passed his own house, Blickling, uh, Blickling Hall uh, in Norfolk, to the National Trust, becoming the National Trust's first country house in 1940. So what this sort of, I think, demonstrates is that although there was legislation in place by the 1880s, the choices about which buildings and monuments were actually saved was actually very rarely made by the government. It was private individuals and private societies who decided what to keep and what to demolish. And these choices, in as much as they were uncoordinated, they were disconnected, they were not part of a programme, produced a random preservation of buildings. And, of course, continues to have a huge impact on how we perceive our history um, as a nation. The predominance of ruined monuments in the care of English heritage, which, of course, is the successor of the Office of Works, and of country houses uh, in the care of the National Trust, fundamentally colours our view of our past history. 
Well, the Acts of Parliament that I've described only protected places and structures that were uninhabited. Uh, and that remained the case um, until the Second World War. Trotsky, who is not someone who I often um, quote, observed um, something that is, in my opinion, one of the most important historical truths. And that is that war is the locomotive of history. And so it was with the scientific compilation of buildings of architectural and historic merit. Because as the London Blitz reigned, it was realised that there needed to be some guidance after the war about which damaged buildings should be repaired, because they were important, and which ones could simply be demolished. And so a panel of 300 architects were set up to inspect damaged buildings and create lists of those buildings worthy of saving. The London list was the most professional and systematic of the lists, and the regional lists were not quite as good. But nevertheless, these lists established the principle that it was going to be necessary in the process of post-war reconstruction to know a lot more about which buildings and which places were of historical uh, value. And it was as part of the 1944 Town and Country Planning Act that proposals were finally accepted for a proper systematic system um, of preservation. It was decided an expert committee was going to be formed to supervise the compilation of a comprehensive list of all the buildings in the whole of England of sufficient merit to be uh, protected. And so, as a result, the first building in England to be listed was Gosfield Hall in Essex on the 1st of August 1946. And from that moment onwards, the process of listing went ahead. The list was only finally completed in, 90, um, 19, uh, in, in 1970 with just over 86,000 uh, buildings. But by then, there were two schools of thought. The first was represented by the poet laureate, architectural enthusiast, and the most flamboyant conservationist of the immediate post-war years, John Betjeman. He was the advocate of the personal amateur, gentlemanly process of preservation which the old Office of Works and the National Trust had pioneered before the war. He wasn't interested in scientific categorization. His approach was tweed suits, pipes and country pubs. In the opposing camp was the brilliant German emigre Nicholas Pevsner the founder of the Buildings of England series of architectural guides, now just simply known as Pevsners, or as those um, who use them a lot as Pilsners. Uh, Pevsner was an art historian working at the Courtauld Institute, and he set out to catalogue all the important buildings in England um, in this series of county volumes, the first of which was published in 1951. And he was representative of the systematic methods of building categorization that was rapidly developing after the 1944 Act. There was no love lost between these two men. To Pevsner, Betjeman was an amateur, a poet, a TV personality, and a funny man. Meanwhile, Betjeman said of Pevsner, the introduction of professionalism into such subjects as literature, architecture, and art too often turns enjoyment into ashes. 
Their animosity broke out into open warfare in 1952 with insults traded in the pages of the TLS and other literary journals. Well, in the end, the Pevsnerians won. In 1981, recognising the inadequacy of the original lists of historic buildings, this is a picture of Michael Heseltine recognising the inadequacy of the lists, <laughs> Michael Heseltine set up a new survey, this is an incredible thing, a new survey of the entire country. And at first he wanted to finish this uh, survey within a decade, and then it was uh, decided to accelerate the work and finish the resurvey of the whole of England in two years. Eighty field workers were recruited and were sent out to look at every existing listed building and then to consider proposals for new listings which were going to be put up by local authorities. Although a huge amount was achieved and many buildings not considered before were added to the list, particularly um, 18th and 19th century buildings in towns, the process, although I think you could call it systematic, was in no way scientific. And out of this thing, the resurvey, came a new way of doing things. This was called thematic listing. And this was a truly method uh, a methodical process, looking at, for instance, uh, I'll just give you an example here, at random, non-conformist chapels in Cornwall. So, here is a classic English heritage map. Each dot represents a non-conformist chapel in Cornwall. In this case, inspectors were sent to every chapel to measure its quality against strictly formulated criteria. In April 1999, the new list for Cornish chapels was announced, cleaned up, rationalised, and now truly represented. 28 chapels had been taken off the list, 13 were added. This uh, process of taking a theme, and another theme that has uh, recently been undertaken, is uh, post-war university buildings, so uh, surveying uh, this campus, uh, but also every single um, post-war university campus, to look scientifically at the output at a single time of a single building type to work out which buildings are worthy of um, uh, preservation. Finally, scientific listing, scientific preservation scientific analysis of buildings had come to an age. The tweed wearers were turning in their graves. Pevsner would have smiled contentedly. So where are we now? Well, of course, the state's patronage of architecture is much diminished. From the 1980s, commercial architecture enjoyed, if that's the right word, a revival. And today, although the state is still a major commissioner of architecture, it's a much more balanced picture. Art museums, I think, still make much of the running in the collecting of contemporary art, much of which could never be shown anywhere other than a museum. Try sticking that in your front room. <laughs> and Courtauld Institute intellectuals like me, funded by the state, choose which buildings will be saved for future generations to understand their nation's history. The state, in short, had nationalised the control of our nation's story, of our nation's civilization. Well, I'm not going to end this evening with a value judgment about the state's role in defining manufacturing and stimulating a civilization. That's not my purpose. But I 
think it is worth taking a, a historical perspective. Because, you see, I think still in 2011 we are recovering from the effects of the Second World War. The pattern of society, of politics, of artistic and cultural exercise still lie in the penumbra of the total mobilization of the state for survival. Lord Clark wrote his great series partly in opposition to this situation. When he was approached by the controller of BBC Two, David Attenborough, to do the series, Clark says, and I quote here, he used the, the word civilization. And it was this word alone that persuaded me to undertake the work. I had no clear idea of what it meant, but I thought it preferable to barbarism and fancied that this was the moment to say so. <laughs> Governments all over Europe are now trying to untangle the role of the state and the individual. The UK government is starting to do this in arts and heritage policy right now. I wouldn't agree that state sponsorship of the national culture was barbarism, but perhaps liberation from it may, just may, usher in a new phase in our civilization. Thank you. <laughs>